In a few days, we will be at a new designation of time that we call the new year. And when the clock strikes 12 midnight Wednesday, which is then Thursday, you will be then allotted 8,064 hours for the next year. How will you spend those hours? What will you do with them? Typically, this is the time of the year that we start examining the past and start making resolutions, as we call them, for the future. Uh, Some of us swear off bad habits. We're going to put away nicotine, alcohol, overeating, television, bad habits, character flaws, gossip. Others determine to take on new behavior patterns. Uh, This is going to be the year we get in shape physically, lose the weight, read through the Bible once, all the way through from cover to cover. We make those resolutions, and it's because when we look back over our past, there are certain things that we would change, words we wish we wouldn't have said, regrets that we have because we have done something. So the idea of a new start is very appealing. Like the man who found his name in the obituary column of the newspaper one day and went to the editor and said, I'm indignant. This is horrible. How could you let this happen? Uh, This is going to be embarrassing to the community and I'll probably lose business because of you. And the guy tried to calm him down. I apologize. I'm sorry. The man was not uh, to be dissuaded. Uh, You couldn't calm him down. And finally, the editor said, look, cheer up. Tell you what, I'll put your name in the birth column tomorrow and you have a fresh start. We Americans are strange people. We spend all year complaining about our world condition, our country's condition, our personal condition, and then we get together on New Year's Eve and throw a party, make lots of noise. It's a new year. Why do we do that? Because of the hope that it could be different. We love New Year's for the same reason we love sunrises or Mondays or season changes. This somehow could be different than how it was before. It's a brand new start. It's a clean chalkboard ready to be written on. In Joshua chapter 3, Israel is on the threshold of not a new year, but a new experience. They call it the promised land. It's the land of Canaan. It's the object of their conversation for the last 40 years, the the subject of their dreams night after night. And now they're finally there. They're on the edge of it. They're ready to cross over. Problem, it's not what they anticipated. There's no welcoming sign. There's no welcoming committee. There's no bus to take them to their destination. There's a river. There's a barrier that they have to cross to get into the land, just like they had to cross through the Red Sea. Now they have a river in front of them that they must cross over into the new land. Let's look at the first few verses of this chapter, and then we'll get our bearings and we'll go on. Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from the Acacia Grove. They came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and priests, the Levites bearing it, you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet 
There shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. You could write that last little phrase over the next year. You have not passed this way before. It's brand new, just like this land, this experience was all brand new to the children of Israel. They'd never been there before. They have just spent 40 long, boring, predictable years wandering out in the desert, and they're going into something they've never faced. We're on the threshold of a new experience, a new land, a new future. We've not passed this way before. When we look ahead, like the children of Israel, perched at the edge of that river, looking over into the land, what's it going to be like? Well, as we go through some of these verses, using Joshua 3 as our template, I'd like to tell you what you can expect in the future, in the new year, what you can expect, how you can prepare, and where you can begin. What can you expect? Well, the obvious thing is lots of uncertainties. I mean, nobody knows the future except God. We stand looking into the new year with lots of questions. Just like these guys, they had a new leader. Moses is now dead. Joshua is the new kid on the block in terms of leadership. They're about ready to go into a land they've heard about but not really seen. Lots of questions must have been bouncing around their brains. Questions like, well, who's going to be there? And what are they going to be like? What will it be like for us? Where will we pitch our tents? Will there be shopping malls in Canaan? No, I doubt they asked that question. But all sorts of questions they were wondering about. And so we look into our future. And we say, what's it going to be like for me, for my family? My job might be a little precarious. What about my personal health? What about international politics? What about domestic politics? What about the interest rate? What's going to happen? Now, we can spend a lot of time conjecturing and planning and and seeing where the trends are going and try to predict the future. In fact, truth be known, our culture is fairly preoccupied with trying to nail down the future. Have you noticed? Have you noticed the, the proliferation in the last couple of years of psychic services? Call us, 1-800-WILL-TELL-YOUR-FUTURE. Or the proliferation of astrological publications. There are literally tens of thousands of registered, licensed, whatever that means, astrologers in our country. I've heard it said that in New York City alone, registered astrologers occupy two entire columns in the phone book. And in the Library of Congress, Congress, it takes a whole entire drawer of their catalog. We have an obsession with the future. What's it going to be like? It's always been that way. It's not really new. Um, I was reading that in the ancient Roman times. They had a strange way of predicting the future. You might call it prophecy by chicken. Hens were placed in a cage. Food was placed next to the hens. If the hens ate voraciously, uh, it was a good sign. It was a yes. It was a good omen. If they were listless and didn't pay much attention to their food, it was considered a bad omen, bad sign, bad vibes were going to come their way. Uh, Horoscopes, to me, are about as lame as prophecy by chicken. They're very popular, but very unpredictable. 
Uh, in fact, as an experiment, one group decided to send the very same exact horoscope to hundreds of people born in all 12 zodiac signs, telling them each, this is specifically for you. And they got back letters from each one of those groups thanking them for how specific and how exact those predictions were in their lives. But would you really want to know the future? I mean, people say they do, but would you really want to know the details of what's coming up in this next year? I don't. Frankly, I don't want to know if somebody I love is going to die or if there's going to be an earthquake in some place where there are people that I love. I don't want that looming over my future. God graciously withholds information from us. The only exception to that would be prophetic literature. He'll give us insight into the future, but he doesn't give you a detailed explanation. We don't know. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. God has made one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. As hard as we try... It's a guess. We are sophisticated. We are knowledgeable. We can transplant organs from one body to the next. We can come up with ways to go to the moon. We can send satellites beyond. We can make faster microchips. But we don't know the future. There's lots of uncertainties. That's what you can expect, uncertainties. But there are certainties. At the same time... Joshua tells them, though you're facing this unknown land, there are certain things you can be assured of. Number one, difficulties. Now, at this point, you may be saying, Skip, you're not scoring big points in this message. You just told me I've got an uncertain future and I can face difficulties. Well, that's just the facts. And hold on, there's more to come. But think about it. There they are. The first thing they come up to is a river. How are we going to get? There's no bridge. Nobody has constructed a means at this point to get across it. It seems unconquerable. That's the first thing they meet up with. Now, uh, for those who are a little more adept in the uh, setup of Israel, you might say, Skip, listen, I've read or I've traveled to Israel. I've seen the Jordan River. Not that impressive. Not a big deal to cross the Jordan. It's only 100 feet to 100 yards wide. But... Look down at verse 15. As those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water. Notice what's in parentheses. For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest. They are there at flood time, and this river, normally 100 feet to 100 yards wide, is now well over a mile wide. And they've got animals and children and supplies, and they've got to make it all of these people across the river. Difficulties. I think every Christian has some kind of Jordan River that they face. Some thing that looks unconquerable, uh, uh, unpassable. It could be an internal Jordan River. Some propensity that they have toward anger or lust or some character flaw they're dealing with. It seems unconquerable. 
Some others have an external Jordan River. There's that unsaved friend or relative. We think they're long gone. There's no hope. Could be a disability. And every time we look at that river of ours, internal or external, every time we look at it, we're reminded of it. It's like, oh, depression. I hate it. It seems so uh, impossible to cross over. Look down at verse 10. Without even reading the first part, which we will in a minute, look at the second part. There's a list of who's on the other side of the Jordan. There are Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Perizzites and Girgashites and Amorites and Jebusites and Termites. No, they're not there. (laughs) But there's a lot of ites in that verse. The occupants of the land who would be, in effect, enemies that would fight against them, who would not welcome the children of Israel who have come to take over. They would face formidable enemies. You can expect rivers. You can expect enemies in short difficulties. That's not all you can expect. You can expect victories at the same time. Verse 5, Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He's talking about that river that's going to open up. And then down in verse 10 again, emphasizing now the first part, Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out from before you all of the Canaanites and the rest of the ites that are in those verses. In short, God opened up the Red Sea for your parents. God's going to open up the Jordan for you. And that's just the beginning of many wonders you're going to see. You're going to have enemies. They're big. They're formidable. They've got city-states. They're well-armed. But you're going to go into battle, and you're going to come back victorious. And wouldn't you know it, every time they faced an enemy in that land, and they faced that enemy with a lump in their throats, and they kissed their wives and children goodbye, if perhaps that's the last time they'd ever see them, They'd always come back. God gave them the territory. What can you expect? Battles, difficulties, rivers, and victories. In other words, a mix. This next year is going to be for you a mixed bag. You're going to see rivers. You're going to see difficulties. You're going to see victories all mixed together. There's going to be days that the challenge is so great, you think... I'm not going to make this one. I can't get through this. This is tougher than I've ever experienced before. Now, if today you could choose your path, if you could see it all spread out before you and you could choose which part of these verses you want, you would say, well, I want the first part. Or, I mean, I want the second part, not the first part. Forget the rivers. Forget the difficulties. I want the victories, right? We love that path of least resistance. But question, do you really? I don't think so. First of all, life would be pretty boring without challenges. If it was all the same road, level ground, big deal. You know, my dad loved to take us on vacation when I was a kid. And uh, his policy was, why fly there when you can drive there? And so he would drive sometimes... Uh, well, most of the time, from Southern California, where I was from, and he'd drive us to Minnesota. He wasn't fond of hotels. Why spend the money? You got a car. 
let the kids sleep in the back. We begged him just for a, a restroom break. But driving in that car from coast to almost the other coast, there's so much flat, boring territory from one side to the other. When you come around these parts, or Colorado, there's mountains. Hey, all right, there's a break here. I like the differences of terrain. We don't like it all the same. In life, it would be boring if it was all flat. So predictable. Secondly, you might say, I want to walk in victory all the time. The word victory implies there's been a battle. You have to have victory over something, some challenge, some enemy. And so they come so that there might be a victory. Even David prayed, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not, Yea, Lord, though I walk around every valley, Yea, though I am airlifted out of every valley, from mountain peak to mountain peak. You walk through it. The Reader's Digest, and I've always loved this little quote, said, Expecting not to be treated badly just because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack you just because you're a vegetarian. What can you expect? Uncertainties, and yet some certainties, difficulties, victories. More than that, you can expect the presence of God. That's the great part. doesn't matter where you are. At a river, God will be there. The other side of the river, God will be there. Facing the enemy, God will be there. In the victory, God will be there. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Same idea as in verse 5. Or excuse me, verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Can you imagine how good news this was to young Joshua? He knew that God was with Mo. Everybody saw that. For 40 years, God spoke to Moses, and Moses was this awesome leader. And now Joshua's in charge. Moses is dead. God says, hey, Josh, don't worry. Just like I was with Moses, I am personally with you as well. Not only was the promise extended to the leader of this group, but to the group itself. Verse 8, you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, when you've come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Now, the idea was this. The priests would bear the Ark of the Covenant. That's that box in Indiana Jones, in case you're not familiar with Old Testament biblical literature. And they they would take the ark and they would march so that everybody could see and follow the ark. And the ark was always a symbol to the Israelites of the presence of God. The ark is mentioned 16 times in chapters 3 and 4 alone of the book of Joshua. It's a symbol that God is with us. In Exodus 25, God said, I'm going to meet with you at the ark on the mercy seat. I'm going to speak to you from the ark. When uh, the priests in the desert took up the ark in Numbers chapter 10, when Moses saw the ark rising, he stood up and prayed, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered before you. So just the ark traveling in front of them indicated God's with us. We can see this visible reminder of the presence of our God in our midst. You might say, well, I don't have an ark at home. I don't have that visible reminder. In fact, Skip, truth be known, there's a lot of times 
that I've even doubted the presence of God. Yes, I've committed my life to Jesus Christ, but let me tell you, this last year, there have been times when I've wondered if God was with me. I couldn't feel God. God didn't say you'd always feel Him. God said He'd be with you, whether you feel it or not. The issue isn't, do I feel the presence of God? The issue is, is God there? You say, well, wouldn't I feel Him if He were? Well, You can go out in the sun some days, and it's a cloudy day. There is no sun that you feel. It's cold. It's snowing or raining. Now, what if you were to walk outside on a cloudy day and say, I don't feel the sun. I don't see the sun. There is no sun. We would say that is lame thinking. It's still there, just on the other side of those clouds. God promises His presence to be with you. You face this next year, uncertainty, God will be there, that's for certain. And that's what covers all of this. M.I. Haskins wrote, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. But he replied, Go out into the darkness. Put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. So, though there will be battles and rivers and uncertainties, God will be present with you. Let me ask you this before we move on. Knowing that your path is going to have bumps on it, it's not going to be flat, there will be hills and valleys, which do you focus on? Are you the person that has the tendency to focus and count every bump in your road? Or are you just glad you're on the road that it leads home? Are you the type of person when seeing that huge white sheet and seeing the amount of white that's on it, so wow, what a a white sheet. Or or are you the type that looks at that black dot, that smudge? Why is that smudge there? Why are you worried about the smudge? There's so much more white. Yeah, I know, but I hate that thing. I'm going to tell God about it. I, I heard this cute little story of the monastery up in the mountains of Surat, Spain. Uh, The monastery is a cloistered monastery for monks. Uh, The fundamental condition is absolute silence while you're there. You're not allowed to say one word for two years. At the end of two years, you are allowed to say to your superiors two words. Well, a young inductee was placed in the monastery. He uh, gave his two years. He was in absolute silence. And um, he was brought before his superiors at the end of two years to speak his two words. He stood there and he said, food, terrible. (laughs) And he went his way for two more years. Abject silence. Now it's the end of four years. He comes before his superiors. He's able to say two more things, two more words. And as they gather around, he says, bed, lumpy. He walks away. Two more years pass. Now six years have been invested into this place. He comes before his superiors, and the monk says, I quit. (laughs) When he does, the superior monk says, You know, I'm not a bit surprised. All you've done since you've arrived here is complain, complain, complain. (laughs) Six words in 
all those years. Are you like that? You complain, complain, complain. That's what your prayer is filled with. You look at the road. It's been full of bumps. There's been bad times. Yeah, but where's it leading? Secondly, how do I prepare for it? Verse 5, Joshua tells them how they're to prepare for it. He says to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Isn't it interesting, knowing that they're going to face Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and all the other ites, the enemies of the land, that this general doesn't say, sharpen your swords and polish your shields, boys, you're going to go into battle. He tells them that they ought to be spiritually prepared. That's the idea of sanctify, means consecrate, be devoted to God. Make a spiritual decision now as you're going to enter this land. Why? Well, he says, because God's going to do things among you. You're not going to be that great. God will do these things for you. And since you're trusting God and you're following God, now consecrate yourself to God. That's how you prepare. Um, When Moses was with the children of Israel before the foot of Mount Sinai, same command was given. He said to them, sanctify yourselves as the law was given. When he gave that command, you know what they did? They took a bath and changed clothes and devoted themselves in prayer to God. Say, why'd they do that? Because there's an imagery in the Bible of bathing and changing your clothes. It speaks of uh, being cleansed for service, a, a brand new start. A sin defiles, and the image of getting rid of the defilement is a ritual bath and changing clothes. When Jacob returned to Bethel, he changed his clothes, took a bath, prayed to God. When uh, David was cleansed and confessed his sin uh, of adultery with Bathsheba, same thing. Changed his clothes after he took a bath and he worshiped God in Second Samuel. So that's the imagery, that's the idea. The best way for you to prepare for your new year is by making a spiritual decision, a commitment to keep spiritual priorities. My family, Lord, my job, Lord, my business, my days are yours. I commit them to you. It means that you recognize, since God gave you breath to begin with, He gave you life to begin with, He is the only one who has claim on your life. Until you commit yourself to Him for this year, you are not prepared. No matter what you do, you can have your budget all set. But until you commit your way to God, you are unprepared. One of the most famous doctors of history is Dr. Howard Kelly, a world-renowned physician who first started using radium to treat cancer. The night before he graduated from medical school, he wrote a prayer in his journal that said, quote, I dedicate myself, my time, my capabilities, my ambition, everything to him. Bless, Lord, and sanctify me to thy uses. Give me no worldly success, which may not lead me nearer to my Savior. That's to be sanctified. It's more than turning over a new leaf every year. It's acquiring a new root system. I'm rooted in him. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that he holds the future, and I park my car in him, so to speak. I commit to him. Thirdly, where do we begin? Look at verse 8. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out before you the ites that are mentioned in verse 10. 
And verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand in a heap. Where do you begin? Where did they begin? They stood up, they walked over to the river, and they got their feet wet. They started walking into the water. It took a lot of courage to be a priest in those days. You were leading the pack. You were commanded to start walking through the water with the ark, and only when you touch the water will it open. You know, it's very different from the Red Sea crossing. Remember that? They just looked at it. God said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And they watched it open. Really required no faith. Now the command isn't stand still, but get in. Get your feet wet. You know, the priests weren't allowed to say, God, tell you what, open it up first. Let it be nice and dry. In fact, a little cement walkway would be helpful. No, they have to walk in. I've always wondered how far they had to walk in. One step, two steps? Did they just touch the big toe to the water and whoom? Or did they have to go up to their knees, to their waist? Don't you think maybe some of them were saying as they're walking into the water and they're getting wetter and wetter, Lord, I sure hope Joshua heard from you. I hope this was a vision from heaven and not a late night pizza with chili and onions. I hope this was really the voice of God. Because they're walking by faith. They're getting their feet wet. It was impossible by human means. In fact, it sounded kind of corny for Joshua to say, here's the plan. Just start walking through the water and uh, it'll open. Trust me. How many times has this world heard the word impossible? It'll never work. Give it up. Back in 1899, the president, the director of the United States Patent Office said, quote, everything that can be invented has already been invented. In 1895, the Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Society in London, said, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. Man cannot fly. Some years after that, the banker who was advising Henry Ford's lawyer said, the horse is here to stay. The automobile is a fantasy. All of them, it's impossible. This crossing of the river, this Jordan, this is impossible. How many great opportunities are ahead of you in the next year that are disguised as impossibilities? I'm I'm trying to get perspective here. When God says march and it'll open up, consider the one who gave the order. You see, difficulty has to always be measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. He didn't say, okay, figure out a way to dam up the water and maybe you can do it. He just said, I'll do it. He doesn't have the word impossible in his vocabulary. 
Listen to how he introduces himself to the prophet Jeremiah. I am the Lord. I am the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Do you ever ask yourself that question? In fact, take the word anything out of that sentence. Put a blank and fill in the blank. Is blank too hard for the Lord? Is my financial situation too hard for the Lord? Is my marriage and all of its problems too hard for the Lord? Before you bail out, ask yourself that question and apply that. My schoolwork too hard for the Lord? My plans that have gone awry, are they too hard for the Lord? March, he says. Unless we step out in faith and get our feet wet, I don't think we're ever going to see any progress. In fact, the theme of the entire book of Joshua is this. Go for it. Get your feet wet. Go through the land. March. Dare to see what I can do when you start walking. You see, unbelief says, let's go back where it's safe and predictable. The best way is, let's go forward. That's what faith says. Let's go forward. Let's see where God is working. Let's actually use His promises. Let's actually believe them. See what happens when we dare to do so. P.S. If you were to measure out how much land God gave this group, the children of Israel, it would total 300,000 square miles. In the height of all of Israel's glory, at best, they took 30,000 square miles. They only took a tenth of all that God promised them. I wonder how different we are. I wonder if God doesn't have lots of things and plans for our future. And here we are at the edge of the river. I see others over there. but I don't think I can ever get across. So I'm just going to sit right here. I bet there's a lot of Christians that are between Egypt and Canaan. In fact, at the border of the promised land, looking over the river, but they don't step out in faith. They don't appropriate God's promises. And so they just look and they wonder. Someone wrote that if he had to live his life all over again, well, here's his words. If I had to live life over I'd dare to make more mistakes the next time. I'd, I'd relax. I'd limber up. I would be sillier than I've been on this trip. I'd take fewer things seriously. I'd take more chances. I'd take more trips. I'd climb more mountains. I'd swim more rivers. I would eat more ice cream and less beans. Amen. I would perhaps have more actual troubles, but I'd have fewer imaginary ones. You see, I'm one of those people who have lived seriously, sanely, hour after hour, day after day. Oh, I've had my moments. And if I had to do it all over again, I'd have more of them. I've been one of those persons who never goes anywhere without a thermometer, a hot water bottle, a raincoat, and a parachute. If I had to do it again, I would travel lighter than this trip. If I had to live life over, I would start going barefoot earlier in the spring. I would stay that way later in the fall. I would go to more dances. I would ride more merry-go-rounds. I would pick more daisies. I think we need to add something to that. If I had to live life over again, I'd believe His promises. I wouldn't fret the uncertainties I would be so joyful that he is certainly with me. And I would look into the future and I'd go for it. Because wherever I go, he'll be there. Father, our prayer this morning 
is that we would look to our future with great faith. That the bumps in the road wouldn't be so important to us, so prominent to us. They wouldn't stop us. The, um, the battles that are sure to come, the rivers that seem so impossible and un- uncrossable, we'd start walking through them because you're with us and you promise victory. Thank you, Lord, for the mix that you sovereignly and graciously dole out to us day after day, month after month, and year after year. We don't know exactly if we'll make it through this next year, all of us together. But you promise to be with us not only up to the point of death, but uh, we'll be more alive on the other side in your kingdom. Lord, I pray this morning that every single one of us would be prepared spiritually. As we look to the future and we, we think about what might come, that we would make a commitment to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and let everything be added to us. In Jesus' name.